I'm Misha Youssef. Welcome to the last episode of Tell Them I Am. Um, oh, wow. I can hear myself. Hello. Hello. Misha, is that you? Yes, this is me. How are you? Well, Misha, thank you very much. It's good to be introduced to you over the <laughs> across across the continent. I know. I know. It's such a pleasure to speak to you, finally. Well, Misha, I'm, I'm honored to be on your show. Could you tell me who you are and what you're best known for? My name is Akbar Ahmed. I am a professor on campus at American University in Washington, D.C. I'm the chair of Islamic Studies, and I have, over the course of my life, made films, documentaries, written books. I've been the Pakistan High Commissioner to London. The main story that we're focusing on is when you were a little kid and um, you, you got on a train during partition. Could you take me back to that moment? Like, what was happening? Well, it was 1947. It was the height of summer, August. Your good wishes. As you know, of the many races, creeds and religions that that inhabit the vast subcontinent of India, there are two major nations, the Hindus and Muslims. Hundreds of millions of Muslims cannot be characterized as a minority. We are 70 millions in the northwestern and northeastern zones of India. We constitute a majority of 70% against the caste Hindus in these homelands of ours. We want the division of India... And the partition of India between two countries, India and Pakistan, had been announced. I have a very faint memory of an incident which is a blur. It may have happened, it may not have happened. But I recall a lot of noise, a lot of shouting. It was late at night, again, in the official house. And these divisional superintendent houses were huge. So they had large lawns and they had literally dozens of uh, official servants uh, wearing red. The, 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 the servants used to wear a red tunic in the, under the British Raj. And I recall a sh- the shouting, yelling. And then I just walked out amongst them and said, what's happening? And I recall everyone saying, get him in, get him in, don't, don't tell him what's happening. And I had some idea that someone had died and someone had thrown someone into the well. Millions of people were suddenly given a choice which country they wished to live in. A lot of Muslims in India decided to move to Pakistan, this new country which didn't really exist. And many Hindus and Sikhs living in what was Pakistan wanted to move to India because people worried and were suspicious and fearful of their neighbors and perhaps the religious violence that was to come. My father was a senior official in the British railway system and he opted, it was called opting, which country do you opt for? He opted for Pakistan and very quickly things began to develop. There was a lot of rioting, killing, a lot of Muslims were being killed. So we had to very quickly, rather my father, I was just a boy of four, had to scramble to somehow get his small family, my mother, uh, three of us, uh, into uh, the the train and get us across the border. Now that was simpler said than done because everyone wanted to try to catch a train. There was no other transport. Remember, there's no civil aviation, there's no airplanes. Uh, Buses have stopped because of the violence on both sides. And North India this huge swathe of territory 
was up in violence. It was it was like erupting into ethnic and religious violence. And we shall think of it, something like two million, almost two million people died in this mad communal fury. Everyone seemed to have gone mad. We were living in Delhi. Uh, Delhi was the capital. I have no idea whether it was late in the evening. I have some sense that it may have been late in the evening. Now in the thick of this crisis, our train moved from Delhi through the Punjab, through the killing fields of the Punjab, on its way to the new capital of Pakistan, Karachi. Uh, and uh, the journey was normally would have taken a, uh, two days maximum, but because of the situation in the Punjab, and the violence that was taking place on both sides. Remember, it's very important to understand that this was taking place on all sides. Uh, this journey took several days. And this is what they used to do, the sides, the two sides, that they would slaughter all the passengers on the train except the train driver. So when the train pulled into Karachi, the capital of Pakistan, or Delhi, the capital of India, the entire train would be of dead passengers, except the driver. And my first memory is of being in a compartment in that train going through the killing fields of the Punjab. I remember the color yellowish because uh, that was the color throughout. It was uh, uh, a kind of greenish, yellowish haze in the, the, uh, the compartment. I remember my father saying again and again, uh, his uh, finger on his lips and saying, don't make a noise, don't, don't even breathe, uh, get under the uh, the, the berth uh, at the bottom and I even thought to myself then I was just a little boy I thought uh, if someone's looking for us it's not going to be hard to find us because we'll have a leg sticking out or a hand sticking out and he had a revolver in his hand uh, he was a very very peaceful man and always very warm and affectionate to everyone his juniors, seniors, everyone there's something so horrendous and frightening outside the compartment that my very peaceful father had to have a revolver in his hand And the train would stop a lot. I remember this uh, distinctly. The train would move a little bit and then suddenly it would stop with a jerk. And that became rather ominous and I would feel uh, a lot of tension because that meant that there were people blocking the train, not allowing to move. And it meant that that was danger. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. I remember getting to Karachi and suddenly everything changing. Uh, the tension was lifted. It was like literally a weight was lifted. Uh, very often I asked, uh, how did we survive? Why did we survive? Because the train, the previous train, which we were booked on from Delhi to Karachi, and my mother just insisted. She said, no, I'm not taking that train. I, I need to buy some food for the journey and lentils or whatever. And my father argued with her. He said, we may not be able to get any place on the next train. It's critical we leave. 
and she insisted and then he agreed and later on he would say this was a woman's intuition uh, paying a compliment to her mother and what she did was she literally saved us because that entire train all the passengers were then killed they were slaughtered i was four and um, that literally is my first memory and it left a deep impression on me as to why there would be so much hatred in people that they would want to harm both my parents and uh, the the siblings and myself i've been back to it subsequently over the years uh, one of my earliest essays at burnhall school i was at a boarding school and i remember writing an essay i must have been in the junior cambridge which is the equivalent of um high school it had a description of a train compartment and i described it as as a a casket a death casket a, a cylinder of death and the teacher one of the fathers uh, marking the essay said this is a very striking image and where do you get it from and i wasn't sure because i just used it and obviously it stayed in my mind and then over the years i am constantly having uh, sort of dreams not really nightmares but dreams of being in a train and there's another train moving at great speed and it passes me by and i see my whole family in that train and i feel helpless i i feel my arms and legs can't move or have a cell phone which doesn't work but the message of the the dream is that the other train just speeds by and i'm then stranded on my own without any communication with the entire world and it's a very very lonely feeling it's only now in hindsight when i look back and i say oh my god that is the experience i lived through the same experience that i had my hindu colleague had in reverse which means her family was escaping from pakistan to india and the same same sort of uh, tension um, same sort of problems of logistics how do you get out what do you take with you who do you trust all those same issues she faced and she was also a young girl then when i was doing my phd in in london at soas i met her and at that time i hadn't met very many uh, indians and when we became friends we began to swap stories and joke about each other's cultures and uh, and she said you know that we were told that uh, if you ever see a snake and a muslim you actually kill the muslim first because the muslim is more dangerous more venomous than the snake and i smiled and she said why are you smiling because i said i've heard exactly the same story except in my story it was the sikh or the hindu or whatever and we both smiled and realized that our experiences were like a mirror now when when uh, human relations break down to that level these stories assume a far greater importance they they're magnified they're inflated and they in a sense personify the behavior of the other and that is very dangerous you know akbar it's it's interesting you say that because so i'm i'm pakistani i grew up in karachi and i moved here when i was 12 and i have never had negative experiences with indian people or hindu people but i do feel somewhere deep down like this this bias it's so bizarre you know like i am so surprised as, as cuz my partner is jewish like i'm very accepting and and living that lack of hatred in my life in a lot of ways but at the same time i like i have this thing even though you lived through this like really fraught time you didn't you didn't feel that the ideas i had the images i had from the discussions of my class fellows from the people i met about hindus and sikhs were very negative so i had to overcome that in fact to understand who these people were why they hated us why we hated them and that is when i met my indian friend 
many years later in London, where I really began to understand that these people were very much like us and in a sense experienced exactly as what we had experienced. So when I became adult and I understood some of these um, different permutations and combinations of human relations, I began to get very involved in what's called interfaith understanding, interfaith dialogue. And I began to ask questions and I began to say, the people I meet are very friendly, very normal, they're just like us, they're just like me. So what keeps them away from me is my lack of understanding or my own prejudice or my own ignorance. If we look at each other, as Atticus Finch said when I read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, that if you really have to understand uh, the other, you must get into their skin or get into their shoes and walk about. And then only can you understand the other. The barriers begin to melt and very quickly you make friends and that changes everything. The equation changes between, between peoples and between communities. And I think nothing could be more important. You know, we have these terrible tragedies. You saw the killing of the Jewish community in Pittsburgh. You have the recent uh, killings in uh, New Zealand. And you see again and again this hatred that erupts into violence, into violence where a dozen or two dozen or three dozen people actually shot down, total strangers being killed. And we need to understand where that hatred is coming from not just in terms of the law, but in terms of morality and how do we change that mindset. It can only change if the people committing that kind of violence understand that they're committing violence against themselves. How do you make somebody who feels that level of hatred understand that? Let me quote you the great example of my dear friend, Professor Judea Pearl. His only son was killed in a most brutal way in Karachi. And when I heard about this incident straight after 9-11, I was horrified. And once Judea and I began the series of dialogues, very public dialogues, to promote Jewish-Muslim understanding, this question was constantly asked of him. They would say, how can you be promoting dialogue and friendship and companionship with the people, with the culture that killed your son? And he would answer it this way, my revenge is to have a better understanding and to reach out and build bridges. And I thought that was very inspiring. It was very, very inspiring and very Abrahamic. The whole notion of Abraham where he's being tested and God says, go and take your son up and kill him. Now that to us, uh, the secular minds in the 21st century makes no sense. But it's an act of faith, it's an act of devotion, it's an act of love. And then God intervenes and says, all right, you made your point, you love me, I accept your sacrifice. And of course, he, God rejects that sacrifice. If you read that story, in a sense, it really is very inspiring. And in a sense, I think Judea didn't say this to me, but I think he was also repeating uh, that the, the Abrahamic story. We need to be inspired by people who are able to rise above their own immediate identity and prejudices and even ignorance. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle.
I want to take a second to thank you. Thank you for listening and for sharing the show with your friends. I wanted to make this show because I needed it to exist, and I thought you might need it too. The feedback we've received from you is honestly incredible. So again, thank you. And if you want there to be a season two, make sure you share on Twitter and Instagram and tell KPCC you need more. And of course, you can show your support with a donation, which is probably the best way of convincing people season two is a good idea. Just go to kpccpodcast.org and don't forget, we have t-shirts. And now, thank you so much to everyone who made this project possible. First of all, to my team, you are balls of magic in elegant human form. Arwen Nix, you are the kind of person, producer, and boss who makes other people shine. I am so impressed and inspired by your tireless work ethic and your sense of security. Thank you for your writing and editing and sound designing and notes. Thank you for challenging and elevating me and my work. James Kim, man, if I could be half as sassy and half as good a sound designer as you, I would just, like, die. Thank you for believing in my ability to host back at Story Lab. Thank you for stepping in and making some of the best episodes of this show. Thank you for making me laugh every day. Mary Knopf, you girl are fucking incredible. I am blown away by you. Thank you for being my producer. Thank you for being my friend. Thank you for pulling me out of emotional darkness and taking care of the least fun parts of this project. I can't wait to see you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, God. Fuck. Okay. I can't wait to see what more you make. Thank you to my parents who gave birth to me. You made something amazing. Just kidding. I hope you know everything I make is to pay homage to you and your bold way of living. I'm so lucky. Thank you to my partner, Sammy Miller, for seeing the version of me that I can't even see in myself half the time, and for some of the best ideas of the series, like episode zero. I love you so much. Kristen Muller and Vijay Singh, thank you for doing what you do and making this project happen. Thank you to Stephanie Kraft for your joyful tile art and design. Thank you to David Leinard for your stunning music and for putting your heart into this project. Thank you to Emin Ahmed. Thank you for your creativity and color. Thank you for your hard work. You will be famous. Thank you to Sean and Val for giving me water when I would not take it. Thank you for putting up with our lateness and extended voicing sessions. Thank you for making this show sound even more beautiful. Thank you to David Rodriguez for jumping onto this project and helping us before it was even a fledgling of a baby. Special thanks to all the folks at NPR Story Lab, Meg Martin, the Heart Team. Thank you to KPCC's Bianca Ramirez, Rob Riscoe, Danny Sway, Megan Garvey, Jay Arella, Melissa Liu, Brianna Lee, Robert Garcia, Liz Zimmerman, John Cohn, Valencia Ellis, and Pillars Fund. We won't be back tomorrow. <laughs> That's it. I know this wasn't the best read. No, I can redo it. Great.